0: It's been very good to be here, and I hope I can come back someday. It was really a remarkable experience to get to know you. I feel like we're just starting, and it comes to an end. Well, we started with our theme, and I want to make sure I highlight it again and relate the things I close with to it. Um, The God who strengthens his people, and my aim has been to magnify this God who is so full of, and so complete and so self-sufficient that he is always the source of strength and never the receiver of strength, ever, without exception. He is always benefactor and never beneficiary of any power or being outside himself. He is always giver, helper, supplier, Enabler, never needy, never deficient, never wanting. He is magnified, therefore, by our receiving from him strength, not by our giving strength or help to him. And I sum this up by saying he is most glorified or magnified in us by our being most satisfied in him, in his strength in his promises. And therefore, for God's sake, you must make it your lifetime goal to be satisfied. To be indifferent to your own satisfaction in God is to be indifferent to what is righteous and to promote sin. If God is most glorified in you for his strength, when you are most satisfied in him for that strength, then not to pursue your satisfaction in that strength is sin. And therefore, the pursuit of your own joy is not an option in the Christian life. It's a duty. It's at the essence of what sanctification is. Now, as I was pondering last night, just a a fresh way to say that in a real practical way for your own prayer life, these two texts came together. And I I want you to pray like this. I don't know how you pray about these things, but here are two texts that govern my prayer life deeply. One is um, Psalm 63.3. I've referred to it two or three times. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And put that together then with Psalm 90. Verse 14, where the psalmist prays, Satisfy us, O Lord, in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. Now put those two together. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And here's a prayer, therefore. Satisfy us in the morning with that steadfast love, which is better than life that we may rejoice and be glad in you all of our days, including the day of our death, since it's better than life. And if you can rejoice in the day of your death, because you've always feasted on the steadfast love of the Lord, which is better than life, then you can rejoice on any day, because death is the ultimate enemy, the final enemy. And therefore, if you can do that, you can rejoice through any kind of Misery. So what I'd like to do now in this last talk in order to apply these things and try to work the construct of living the Christian life this way deeper into your own consciousness is to take two or three more sample states of unbelief and deal with them from a standpoint of pursuing your satisfaction in order to be freed from them. And then close by addressing an issue that came up in our mentoring group yesterday, namely, in view of all this talk about pursuing your own satisfaction and Christian hedonism, how should we conceive of and understand the biblical concept of servanthood toward God? It tends to be a a noble, great, central, biblical understanding of how to relate to God, namely a servant to master subject to king does that fit this paradigm so that's the plan now let's take just a few states of unbelief because i i need to work you through two or three more so that um as you face these kinds of temptations of unbelief and sin you will have at least a paradigm that you remember from this conference of attacking those sins and those states of unbelief that can bring your ministry to a screeching and permanent end, even if you don't for sure buy it all, you'll have it in your head as a possible way of fighting the fight, it might come in handy someday. So let's talk about lust for a minute. It's a very relevant thing for me because two and a half years ago, a ten-year associate of mine was found to have been for seven of those years in an active affair with the organist of our church. And it just about destroyed our church. We lost about 238 people. We do not have a replacement for him yet two and a half years later. It disillusioned hundreds with the authenticity of our worship. It caused people to question the authority of ministers. Those kinds of things are devastating in a congregation the ripple effects are unbelievable there are no um, easy ways out therefore i care very much about licking lust about destroying it and defeating it and triumphing over it in my life and in your life now we could talk for hours i've lectured lots on lust and i'm only going to talk five minutes or so here on this And I think the place I want to start with you is uh, second Peter. You can turn there with me. This is a very important text, second Peter, chapter one, because it's not only relevant to lust, it's relevant to every form of corruption and passion that would tend to bring you down in your ministry. And believe me, Satan is out to bring you down. He hates the church of Jesus Christ. He hates the ministers and he never goes on vacation and he lies continually to you. And shoots arrows at you continually. And you must take up all the armor of God, especially the sword of the spirit, which is what we're doing right now. And find daggers that run him through. Day in and day out. Now let's read verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through, but here's how he grants us this power. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So there's some great future glorious things to which he's called us and our power, his power, comes to us through a knowledge of those things. But it says more. By which, now the which there refers to the glory and the excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that's future grace in my vocabulary his precious and very great promises that through these the these the antecedent of these is promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature so if you if I were to give you a final exam on these lectures and ask the question How do you escape the corruption that is in the world through passion? What would you answer me? You would write out something like, through precious and very great promises. I would say, yes, but what's the experiential connection with the promises? Objective reality is nothing if they don't connect with you. And the answer is faith in future grace. Faith in those promises. Now, the the paradigm here is not worked out in any detail in these two verses, but it's clear as a bell how to set about working it out. There are precious and very great promises rooted in excellence and glory. The knowledge of these leads to a transmission of divine power that pertains to life and godliness. And by that, you are freed from lust. Freed from the corruption that is in the world through passion. So believing Precious and very great promises is how to break the power of lust in your life. For example, there was an article in a journal in America about 16 years ago, a journal called Leadership Magazine, about written by an anonymous pastor who had been in the grip of lust for about 12 years, all kinds of horrible things, never going all the way into adultery, but going to shows, strip TV shows, magazines, videos, everything, while he was in cities delivering talks on spirituality. It would be like me here, finding whatever the red light district would be in Melbourne, sleeping with a prostitute, Come back here and lecturing to you folks about purity. Men do that sort of thing. And he wrote this article about how he was delivered. And it wasn't duty, it wasn't guilt. There was a point when he read Matthew He'd probably read it a thousand times, he said. But he read it. Blessed are the pure in heart for promise, precious, very great promise. They shall see God. And it hit him by the power of the spirit that he he was selling his whole life short in what he could see and taste and. An experience of God by giving way to these cheap, low passions over and over again. He was being blinded. He was being kept in the gutter. He was not experiencing the full or glorious beauty of his father. And God gave him a taste of it and made him want it so bad, he wanted it more than the lust, and it was broken. And that's why I define faith as being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. If God promises that you will see him, if you walk in purity and you're satisfied in seeing him, it will work. It will break the power. And so the, the challenge in the ministry, and you know, lay people think we're good at this. They, they think we're good at this. We're not very good at this. They, they think by virtue of being a pastor, God always is gloriously satisfying to us. I tell you, it is one lifelong battle to be satisfied in God and not ministry success or television or becoming a good ping-pong player or whatever happens to be your waste of time. We have to fight, and the way we fight is with the sword of the Spirit, and we meditate. I was so glad to hear Brother Andrew, that's your name, say that you went home the other night and, and just, he just opened his Bible and, and asked the Lord to delight himself, that he could delight himself in the Lord. And that's exactly what I want to happen for being here. I want you to open your Bibles this afternoon or tonight when you go home and say, I don't want to prepare a sermon. I don't want to get ready for any meeting. I just want to taste God. Because if I don't taste you, if I don't experience the wonder of who you are, I'll turn on the television and lust. I'll get out my portfolio and look at the newspaper tomorrow to see if my stocks went up. And if they went up, I'll feel good. And if they went down, I'll feel bad. And I don't want my passions to come from those things. I want them from you. And the only mediating point is the Word as the Spirit broods over you with your elbow on either side. That's the posture where the Holy Spirit comes. Elbow here, elbow here, faith in the book, and the Spirit falls. He loves to honor the Word that He inspired. Another promise. I love this promise. It was one of George Mueller's favorite promises. Uh, Psalm 84.11 The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. For those who walk uprightly, He withholds no good thing. Now, if you believe that, you've got a mighty weapon against lust which is not walking upright. The temptation comes to look longer than you should, think longer than you should, or buy what you shouldn't, or rent what you shouldn't, or go where you shouldn't, and you take that promise and you believe it. You say, Satan, or thought, or book, nothing good is going to be withheld from me if you get out of my life. You are not good. And I reject you and I run you through with this precious and very great promise by which I am now being delivered from the corruption that is in the world. And it dies and falls down and you turn and your whole life, even the pains in your life can be seen as gloriously good. No good things as he withholds from those who walk upright. Maybe one other text. Um, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a whole section I'm passing over, but Over and over again in the New Testament, it says that lusts are lusts of deceit. They're called lusts of deceit in Ephesians 4.22. In 1 Peter 1.14, lust that you had in your former ignorance. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.5, lusts which those have who do not know God. There's a, a knowing thing involved here. People who give way to lust are not knowing something. They're living in either denial or unbelief in some truth, namely the superiority of the value of God over the value of this cheap momentary thrill. But the last text on this issue of lust I want to look at with you is in Romans 8. This is sort of a paradigmatic text for me. Acts, Romans, here it is, 8.13. It says... If you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's talking to Christians here. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. So he threatens professing believers with eternal death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you kill... The deeds of the body. Now, one of those deeds of the body is lust. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of the body, then you will live. How do you kill by the Spirit? Now, that's the sort of thing you should think many hours about. You should ask yourself those kinds of questions. How do you kill deeds by the Spirit? You kill, but by the Spirit. So does the Spirit do it or you do it? Yes, you kill by the Spirit. What is the one killing weapon of the Spirit in in Ephesians 6? The sword. There's only one. You don't kill anybody with a shield. You don't kill anybody with a helmet. You don't kill anybody with shoes. You don't kill anybody with belts. You kill people with swords. And you kill deeds with swords. Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, which I take to mean by the Spirit's enabling you to use His sword which is precious and very great promises. I mean, 2 Peter 1, 4. Therefore, when I get on the plane tomorrow morning, fly to Sydney, they won't show a movie on that plane. But when I get on in Sydney, they're going to show two movies between here and Chicago. And uh, I have no doubt, I don't know what the eastbound movies are, But I have no doubt there will be suggestive scenes in those movies. Okay, what will John Piper do? He will tonight and he will tomorrow morning and he will there open his Bible and find some juicy steak and he will eat. And so fill his belly that that little sugar tidbit being offered will feel very unappetizing. Old Matthew Henry, the commentator, prayed like this, Lord, put my mouth out of taste for the food with which Satan baits his hooks. Put my mouth out of taste for the food with which Satan baits his hooks. It really won't do much good for me to look at it and say, oh, I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this and try to grit my teeth and not think. Far better is to be ravished with a superior pleasure. Break the back of lust by the power of a superior pleasure. Okay, enough on lust. Let's talk for just a minute about unforgiveness and bitterness in the ministry. You've been in ministry long enough to make an enemy, like maybe two, or three weeks, then you will know that there's a tremendous battle not to become a bitter person and to carry your pain into the pulpit and to between the lines let everybody know how you're hurting or who you're angry with. It's an awful danger. Don't do it. Resist it with all your might. To infect your, we all tend to think that if we have one or two or three enemies who are criticizing us, sending us notes, saying mean things to us. But that we have them everywhere. And so we tend to indirectly defend ourselves or indirectly chastise them in our little platform here. It, in, it ruins the whole congregation if you do that. I've said to, to people over and over again, when they ask me counsel, about how do you handle those people? I say, I'm going to outrejoice them. I am going to outrejoice them. They are unhappy, grumpy, miserable people. They want me to be that way so that I will leave and I'm going to conquer through joy. You can't conquer through winning an argument in the pulpit against your enemies. They'll turn it against you every time. You can only win by a loving joy. Now, the question is, how, can, how in the world can you do that? Where does that kind of resource come from? And it comes from a, a really odd place. Let me take you to just one, two texts here in this regard. Romans 12:19. This will sound strange, perhaps, but... I hope it's not biblically unbalanced. Romans 12, 19. Let's start maybe reading at uh, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a nice realistic verse, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It may not depend on you and you may not be able to stop the war but do what you can. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. What's the promise in those verses that... Free you from the corruption of vengeance. Anybody see it? What? That's going to be easy. Exactly. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's the promise. You don't need to settle accounts with your accuser. God will. Now that may, you could treat that in a vindictive way. God will get you. But you can't take that out of the Bible. That is given as a ground. Notice the logic of the verse 19. Never avenge yourselves. That's a loving thing to do. And the ground of it is, God's going to do the avenging. God's going to do it. Here's why this is so important. The, The reason we feel so indignant when we are abused, when we are lied about, When we are unjustly criticized or gossiped about, the reason we feel so indignant is not merely self-pity or thin skin or a vindictive spirit, but an appropriate moral view of the universe. Such things ought not to happen. You are guilty for talking that way. So there's a legitimate indignation when somebody sins in a gossiping way. And that tends to make us feel justified in taking action to defend ourselves and get them. Now, at that point, the relief of that energy and that bent towards vengeance has to come from something that settles the injustice of the universe that's just been perpetrated. And what settles it is one of two things. Either hell settles it. Or the cross settles it, right? If you've got an enemy, he's going to burn in hell forever for what he's done to you. Or if he gets converted, Christ burned and was crushed for that very sin. And it would be double jeopardy and a dishonor to Jesus if you punished him for it. So in either case, you don't need to be the avenger. That part of the whole pressure inside of you can relax and say, all right, it feels like the world is going wrong and injustice is being done and evil is getting away, cheap. But it isn't. This text is a precious and very great promise. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Relax. I mean, when I went through that crisis two and a half years ago, which is still going on in my church The elders sat on the platform with their wives, unified in the discipline that we took and the steps we took, and we sat for hours while a hundred people lashed us. That's the way it works in a congregational church. We set up three microphones, and we just made ourselves vulnerable and said, here's what we're going to do about this. You may now ask us questions and address us with your opinions. And we were torn to shreds. Now, we were mightily supported by maybe 70% of the congregation, but the others had no hesitancy to lay into us for our lack of love and our vindictive spirit and our hasty actions and so on. And to this day, it would be very easy for me to hold a grudge because many of them have not said anything by way of reconciliation. There are broken lives everywhere. They're in other churches all over town. Some don't go to church anymore at all. And we're still mopping up the operations. But what, what enables me to just stop thinking about it for most of the time is God's going to settle accounts. If I erred, I'm open and laid bare. The Lord will wrap my knuckles someday and make it right. And if they erred, Christ bore it. Or if they're not believers, they're going to suffer ultimately for it. That's a gloriously freeing thing. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So I encourage you. There are many other. This is not the only promise, not the only strategy for handling bitterness and unforgiveness, but it's a crucial one. One more state of unbelief before I turn to that last point of servanthood, namely anxiety. Anxiety is huge. It covers almost everything, but I, I want to address it with uh, one pair of texts What do you do when you are threatened with the state of unbelief called anxiety? I call it a state of unbelief because the Bible says not to be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You shouldn't be anxious. You shouldn't be an anxious person. Christians are not supposed to worry. They're not supposed to be anxious. Now... In the great passage on anxiety in Jesus' teaching, namely Matthew 6, it ends with a remarkable verse. I want to connect it with a verse in Lamentations that you're all very familiar with. But in Matthew 6, 34, it says, Therefore, after he's talked about not being anxious, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That's the old King James Version. Or it's the, let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. I think the King James is a little better. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Or each day has enough evil of its own. Now, here's what I think that means. I think it means that God in his providence and love for his people apportions out our troubles with an appropriate amount for each day. And according to Lamentations three, from which we get the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, it says uh, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new how often? Every morning great is that faithfulness now put those two texts together lamentations 3 23 and matthew six thirty-four. each day has a sufficient amount of trouble for itself the mercies of the lord are new every morning you see the correspondence this day's mercies are designed precisely for this day's Troubles. And if you try to take tomorrow's troubles and make them carried by today's mercies, there's an overload. You, you don't stockpile mercy. It can't be done. You've got to take what God gives for each day. You can't store it up. It's like manna. It rots at the end of the day. That's why you've got to get up early and go to the Word and get it again. i got to get saved every morning, I tell my people. That's how bad I am as a morning person. I've got to get converted all over again, every morning. Better, George Mueller said, and you remember he was the man who built the orphanages and got so many answers to prayer, he said, my number one challenge is to get myself happy in God every morning. Because he didn't wake up happy in God, he had to go to the Word and find promises and see the Lord afresh, and then his heart rose with the beauty of Christ that he was sufficient For that day so there's a there's an amount of grace and this is an incredibly pastorally precious thing for your people for example got all kinds of applications but one of the things your people deal with especially as they grow older young people they don't think much about these things they don't have the sense to think about them but when you grow older you start thinking about whether you will have the resources to handle your last illness And what it will be like. How much pain will there be? How do you actually die of lung cancer? Do you drown? How do you die of bone cancer? Is it just so painful you scream yourself to death? What is dying? Will I be able to die? Well, for Christ's sake. And and they come to you, or they feel it without coming to you, and they say, you know, I don't feel like I have the strength to do this. Or young people will read a story about a martyr like um, John and Betty Stamm who were missionaries to China and when they were kicking out the missionaries they were not so fortunate and were drugged, stripped down to their underwear and she was made to watch while they beheaded her husband. She fell on top of him and they beheaded her. You read a story like that and try to imagine... Here's a young bride with a small... The little baby had been taken away from the day before and was smuggled out and lived. Um, you ask a young 25-year-old girl today, do you think you could handle seeing your husband, the neck you kiss, severed right in front of you, and his head rolled on the ground? And the average answer would be no. And, and the pastoral response to that is, okay, because... Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And the mercies for that event, or whatever event you face, will come that day. And if you build a congregation that believes that, you'll have a very strong people. They don't need to feel the ability today to deal with tomorrow's cancer, or tomorrow's martyrdom, or tomorrow's loss of job, or tomorrow's divorce, or whatever. All they need to believe is... When the tragedies come, God will be there and he'll be there with a sufficient grace. You know, the, do you swing Swedish hymns here? I wonder, Do you know, the hymn uh, day by day with each passing moment. Anybody know that hymn? One or two. There's a great verse. Let me just read it for you. Every day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my father's wise bestowment, there's no cause for worry, or for fear. we He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day its part of pain, and pleasure. That's right. It's right theology. And it's beautiful. So anxiety, I believe, is overcome by the promise in the word that each day will have its own sufficient set of troubles. And each day will have a completely adequate store of mercy new for those troubles. Um, what you do in order to fight anxiety is to make a list of the kinds of things you get anxious about and then find appropriate promises. Let me read you my list. Suppose you fear lacking resources. Then you read Philippians four, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory, which we studied the other day. Suppose you fear becoming useless in the ministry and ineffective. You go to Isaiah fifty five, eleven, the word of God will not come back empty. Or 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, the work you do is not in vain in the Lord. Suppose you fear weakness. You go to 2 Corinthians twelve nine. my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in weakness. Suppose you fear uh, decision-making. There's some big decisions on the horizon, you don't know which way to go. You go to Psalm 32, 8, and trust the promise, I will instruct you and teach you and counsel you with my eye upon you. Suppose you fear opponents, that they're going to be stronger than you and bring you down. You go to Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Suppose you fear affliction and persecution. You go to Psalm thirty-four, nineteen. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Suppose you fear aging. You go to Isaiah 46, 4. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save to your old age. And suppose you fear dying. You go to Romans fourteen seven to 9. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. and If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is the way you live the Christian life. This is the way you fight the fight of faith. This is the way you overcome the states of unbelief like anxiety. You fight with the word of God, believing the promises precious and very great, trusting in future grace. Now, let me close by addressing this issue that came up in our mentoring group. Does this paradigm of living the Christian life, pursuing your own joy in the promises of God and delighting in him and being a Christian hedonist fit with Paul's self-identity and Jesus' self-identity as a servant, a doulos of God or of Christ? And I want to argue that it does because when you take a metaphor like slave master, you know that there are elements of that metaphor which are intended to be believed and elements that are not. There are elements about slave master analogies that would be unworthy of a relationship to God. And so the question is, what element of the analogy slave master does the Bible want us to focus on when it calls us servants or when it calls God our, our master? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. But here he is, servant, right, pouring his life out for his master, his Lord. I worked harder than any of them. And then he catches himself to clarify and says, nevertheless, it was not I but the grace of God, which is with me. So if you analyze how he serves, the answer is he serves by receiving strength, which is the name of this conference. He serves by receiving strength. So you, we've got to get out of our head that the piece of the analogy between servant and master is we meet the needs of our master, like a southern plantation owner in America with a thousand slaves, and if they go boycott, he crashes. Not so with God. God is not dependent on his slaves. He is the supplier of his slaves. If his slaves succeed in their work, it's because the master gave them the strength, according to the Corinthians fifteen ten same thing with Philippians two twelve work out your salvation with fear and trembling that's the good hard servant duty text next verse for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure so yes we work but at the end of the day when we turn around and look at our work we give Him the glory because He was the one at work in us to will and to do. Or Hebrews thirteen twenty, may the good shepherd who brought again from the dead, or may God of peace who brought again from the dead, our good shepherd, equip you with everything good, working in you what is pleasing in his sight. So if we're going to serve him, it will be owing to the fact that he has worked in us, a yieldedness and a readiness to serve him. So that helps me understand why Acts seventeen twenty five would say, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. The whole point of that verse is to say, when you think about the service of God, do not think about servants supplying masters. Do not think about servants meeting master's needs. Do not think about masters being dependent upon the service of the servants. Get all of that part of the analogy out of your head. That's what that verse means. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. There must be another way to serve God besides serving him as though he had needs. So we must help our people not think of serving God as meeting God's needs or, oh, poor God, wring his hands. I have no world uh, mission force. And what will I do to get the nations converted? He's not wringing his hands. He can snap his finger and have 100,000 missionaries in a moment. And he is getting his missionaries, many of them from the third world, because he's passing right over the West in our delinquency. Well, the question to ask. Oh, one more text on, on this not serving. I don't know if you've ever concentrated on the negative half of Mark 10:45. The son of man came not to be served, period. You ever stop there and just think about it? The Son of Man came not to be served. That's an important half of the verse. We usually just pass right over that half and go on to the next half. The Son of Man came not to be served and to give his life a ransom for many. But he did come not to be served. The Son of Man came not to be served. Isn't that remarkable? Paul called himself the servant of the Son of Man, the servant of Christ. And the Son of Man says, I did not come to be served. So what's wrong with Paul? It's because analogies or metaphors are tricky. They're tricky. You've got to be careful when you read the Bible. You've got to to look at the context and you've got to say, okay, Jesus was saying he's not to be served in some sense, and Paul says he serves in some sense, and they are not contradictory. So now my last question is, in what sense do we serve? What's the right way to conceive of serving God? And there are a few texts, and I'll close with it. One is Psalm 123. just read it on the plane coming out here from my devotions, and it was rem- I reminded of it. So it came to my mind as I was thinking about this last time. Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2. To thee I lift up my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Behold... As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he have mercy on us. Now, there's a paradigm for servanthood that you can embrace without any hesitation. How do you serve him? You look to him with your hand outstretched. If you're a maid and God is your mistress. You look to him with your hand outstretched until he mercifully fill your hand. So to serve Jesus is to come to Jesus with your hands empty and to have them filled with something that he probably means for you to share with others. First to satisfy your own heart and then to share with others. That's the picture of servanthood we should have. Servants all over the place and all they are is empty handed. And the master has got a huge table and it's full and he's got tools and he's got oxygen tanks and he's got medicines and he's got food and he's got armor and he's got transportation and he's got songs and he's got uh ref- exercise bicycles and he's got beach cottages for vacations and he says now come on join my horse here receive and receive and receive Matthew 6:24 another one to give you another picture on what servanthood means Matthew 6:24 No one can serve 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 two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, here's servanthood talked about. And the question to ask about the meaning of serving God here is, how do you serve money? Because that's the parallel. How do you serve money? Do you serve money by meeting money's needs? No. No. Do you supply anything to money when you serve money? No. So what does serve money mean? I think serve money means put money before you in such a way like a waterfall or a spigot and maneuver all your thinking and all your life and make all your choices so as to maximally benefit from money. I think when you do that, you're serving money. Always an eye to the market. Always an eye to some deal. Always an eye to maximizing your financial resources when you, when you... that you can embrace without any hesitation. How do you serve Him? You look to Him with your hand outstretched. If you're a maid and God is your mistress, you look to Him with your hand outstretched until He mercifully fill your hand. So, to serve Jesus is to come to Jesus with your hands empty and to have them filled with something that He probably means for you to share with others. First to satisfy your own heart and then to share with others. That's the picture of servanthood we should have. Servants all over the place and all they are is empty-handed and the master has got a huge table and it's full and he's got tools and he's got oxygen tanks, and he's got medicines, and he's got food and he's got armor and he's got transportation, and he's got songs, and he's got uh, exercise bicycles, and he's got beach cottages for vacations. And he says, "Now come on, join my." here receive and receive and receive Matthew 624 another one to give you another picture on what servanthood means Matthew 6 24 no one can serve 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 two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money. Now here's servanthood talked about. And the question to ask about the meaning of serving God here is, how do you serve money? Because so that's parallel, parallel. How do you serve money? Do you serve money by meeting money's needs? No. Do you supply anything to money when you serve money? No. So what does serve money mean? I think serve money means put money before you in such a way like a waterfall or a spigot and maneuver all your thinking and all your life and make all your choices so as to maximally benefit from money. I think when you do that, you're serving money. Always an eye to the market. Always an eye to some deal. Always an eye to maximizing your financial resources. When you, when you lead your whole life so as to be maximally benefited by money, you are serving money. And that's exactly the way I think we're supposed to serve God. Always using every thought, maneuvering your whole life so as to put yourself in a position to maximally benefit From the promises of God. You are a servant of God. Suppose one of those lights was a spotlight, and it makes a little circle here, and that circle stands for the rich outflow of God's blessing. For me to serve God would mean to get over here. If you move that way, I'm moving this way. If it goes this way to Indonesia, I go this way. If it goes to Australia, I go this way. If it goes down into the inner city of Minneapolis, I go this way because I'm staying under the blessing. I'm staying under the promises. I'm his slave. But that's a world of difference than to think of poor God needing slaves to supply any needs of his. God is the great worker. And with this, I I close. He's the great worker. We are the great beneficiary. We are to wait for him. Psalm 37, 4, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will work. He will work. God is the servant ultimately. Jesus did not come to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let me close with this text. I tell people at my church that if they were to ask for one verse, that would capture as much of the philosophy of ministry that we have at Bethlehem Baptist Church, it would be 1 Peter 4, 11. It goes like this. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God might get the glory. Isn't that amazing? Let him who serves Serve in the strength that God supplies. We're ending now on our theme. The God who strengthens his people. Let him who serves in the parishes that you're going to go back to. Let him who serves there serve in the strength that God supplies. So that in everything God might get the glory. God is most glorified in you when you receive more strength from him when your service is a reflection of having been so drenched and so blessed by His outpouring of strength and love and grace, then He will be glorified. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I pray for strength now to flow. I pray for supernatural outpouring of of strength upon these brothers and sisters, that they will sense themselves under Your Word to have been borne up and mightily strengthened. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Would You so feast us on Your goodness and Your grace that we are so satisfied in You that the promises of sin would be exposed and nullified for the lies that they are. And so make us pure, holy, free, loving, effective. And do let Australia hear the gospel. Do bring tens of thousands of people who are drinking at broken cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Bring them to the fountain of living water, I pray in Jesus' name